The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. Leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. Let Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler share with you the pathway to becoming a top leader in your organization. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler. Welcome to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers. I'm Dr. Relly Nadler. Uh, my esteemed co-host, Dr. Kathy Greenberg, is out on a cruise now, so she will not be with us. Uh, hopefully, she's enjoying herself, and she'll get a chance to kind of listen uh, to what we're going to be talking about. And, you know, we always want to bring key people who are innovative, bring in new ideas to you. And today we're going to talk with Michael Bungay Stanier. He is the author of numerous uh, different books, but the one that we're going to be zeroing on is The Coaching Habit. Say less, ask more, change the way you lead forever. And I came across his work from one of our colleagues, Dr. Ed Nottingham, who is really good about uh, bringing in um, key people into my world as far as research and doing innovative things. And I know he's uh, had Michael uh, do some presentations at his organization, uh, which is FedEx. So let me say a few words about uh, Michael, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about just our show for anybody who's new listening to us, and then we'll got a series of questions that we'll ask uh, Michael about. So Michael uh, Bungay-Stanier is the senior partner and founder of Box of Crayons. And Box of Crayons helps organizations around the world do less good work and more great work. And so we'll maybe look at that kind of distinction about that. Their training programs give time crunch managers and tools to coach in 10 minutes or less. So I love that. And if you've been listening to our shows for a while, we want to give key tips that you can do. He's the author of a number of books, and the first one that I've seen was the best-selling Do More Great Work. His book and philanthropic project, End Malaria, collected essays by thought leaders around the topic of great work and through its sale raised $400,000 for malaria no more. And we'll ask him a little bit about that. He's been a popular speaker as well as speaking at such organizations as Google, TD Bank, uh, is constantly uh, top-ranked at conferences such as HRPA, Eventa, the Conference Board uh, of Canada. As an Australian, uh, he's surprised to find himself living in Toronto. And he is a Rhodes Scholar uh, at Oxford. His only real success, he said, was falling in love with a Canadian, now his wife, for 20 years. So we're going to get a little personal and ask him some of these questions. Um, he says in his uh, bio here, as George Orwell said, an autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. Bearing that in mind, we'll ask him a little bit about that. Michael was banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident. 
And then he also left law school being sued by one of his lecturers for defamation and managed to knock himself unconscious while digging a hole as a laborer. So you can see he's got a good sense of humor here. Um, and I'm going to ask him those first couple questions if you're curious to get that. And then we've got a series of questions to highlight uh, the coaching habit. So for our loyal listeners to Leadership Development News, we're in our ninth year. We're ranked the number two business show on Voice America. We have about a million downloads just in the last uh, three and a half, four years. Uh, we have listeners in 27 countries and, and um, 126 uh, cities. And Dr. Kathy Greenberg, who is uh, not with us, I'll say a word about her and then a quick little bio about me. But you know her as the First Lady of Happiness uh, by ABC TV. She's authored uh, numerous, multiple popular books on the science of happiness. Some of her books, What Happy Working Mothers Know. Uh, she touches millions of, as an in-demand speaker, TV, and media personality. She has founded four different consultancies, three leadership institutes. She has an iPhone app called Your Happiness Now. It's available on iTunes. And her latest uh, book, Fearless Leaders, Sharpen Your Focus, is all about her work with special forces, sports athletes, global executives. Her website, where you can take a quiz and learn more about a fearless leader, is www.fearlessleadersquiz.com. And then, so for the folks who aren't familiar with me, uh, I'm a psychologist, uh, master certified coach. I have a series of different books. The latest is Leading with Emotional Intelligence, and it has 100 different hands-on tools. That's why I'm really excited to talk with Michael about his hands-on tools. You can get more information at truenorthleadership.com. And if you're interested in our membership and get some free uh, tools and strategies, you can text EI for Emotional Intelligence, EI Central to 38470, EI Central to 38470. And we love talking with leaders like Michael and, and what are the few things that you can do a little differently, maybe a little bit more, so that you can be a top performer or if you lead a team that your team can be a a uh, top performer. So, Michael, welcome to the show. I am excited to be here, although, honestly, I think I'd prefer to be on a cruise with Kathy, but you are the second best offer I've had today, so I'll go with that. <laughs> I Thanks, Michael. I think I'd like to be on a cruise with yeah. Kathy, too. But, Look, why don't you know, we just, I, blow, I we'll no just blow this interview off, and we'll just both head out for a cruise, because, you know, honestly, what are we doing here? Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know about you. I'm looking out my window, and it's still snowing, so something's gone terribly wrong. So are you in Toronto? I am in Toronto, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm looking outside my window. I'm in California, and, and uh, all the flowers are flowering, the, the birds are singing, and it's a, it's a beautiful day here. So. All right. Well, so between the three of us, it's clear that I come number third in terms of places to be at the moment. <laughs> but let's carry on. <laughs> okay, good, good. So you were, so I said in the intro, you're from Australia, and, and how did you land in Toronto? Was it, is it meeting your, your uh, wife? Yeah, it was. So I got a, I was lucky enough to win a Rhodes Scholarship, which took me to Oxford, which was brilliant, but really not for the reasons people might think, although it was a great privilege to be a Rhodes Scholar. It did two things. The first is it stopped me becoming a lawyer, and I would have been a very sad and a pretty adequ inadequate lawyer. So that was a great, a great boon because I finished a law degree in Australia, and the kind of the momentum of things like that is that you carry on, and before you know it, you're 10 years into a law career wanting to kill yourself. Exactly. So that saved me from that. 
But the uh, real bonus was when I arrived in Oxford, almost immediately I met my wife, Marcella, and she and I have been, well, we've been a couple now for 25 years. She is my co-partner in running the business. And honestly, uh, if you ever want the greatest test of a relationship, it's to go and work with your, your life partner because you, you find out all sorts of stuff about yourself and about them that you would never find out otherwise. No, and, and uh, I've been married 26 years, and uh, I think we've decided not to go into business together for probably right. some of the reasons that you are in business. But, yes, it's, it can be very challenging, and, and so I commend you on that. Well, you know, honestly, it, 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 we got it wrong five times. We probably had five identical conversations where my wife would say something like, you know what, this is it. I, I quit. <laughs> She's done with it. <laughs> But, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell people uh, uh, one, of the, one of the things that really influenced and changed the way we worked, and this is good not just if you work with somebody, but if you work with human beings, is there's a thinker out there, a guy called Les McEwen, L-E-S-M-C-K-E-O-W-N. His website is Predictable Success. And he predictable, has a really what is it called, Predictable Success? Predictable Success. Uh-huh. Yeah, here's a really simple but powerful model about the three roles that play out when you work with people. There is uh, the visionary, so that's the kind of big picture, future-oriented, bright, shiny object syndrome, totally yeah. unrealistic about how long things actually take, wants to meddle with everything. That's, that's me. I'm a visionary. Uh -huh. There's the operator. That's the getting stuff done. Doesn't like process, doesn't like to-do list, because that's just a waste of time. It's all about just getting the stuff to, to happen. And then there's the processor. That's the person who kind of needs systems, needs to dot the I's and cross the T's. And they all, they all kind of wind each other up as roles, but they're all needed for a successful organization. Right. And what's powerful about that is you discover that the, the conflict and the dysfunction you have with somebody is less about your personalities and more about the roles you're playing and the fact that those roles always have those dynamics play out. Uh -huh. So now when my wife and I are working together, and she's an O, and I'm a V, an operator and a visionary, rather than me going, Marcella is a crazy woman who has no idea what she's doing and is a disaster being married to her, yet alone working with her, right. I now go, ah, she's an operator, and that's what she wants, and I'm a visionary, and that's what I want, and we always run into each other like this. So it calmed us down a lot, may yeah. helped us survive. Well, I can see how that's really valuable. And, you know, one of the tools that I use all the time is the Myers-Briggs, and, and similar to what you're saying, uh, it's, it's so much easier to say, you know, especially with my wife, I've learned a lot, oh, she's not doing this to me, this is just her way of being in the world, like you're saying, right. and I have a different way of being, so it's less about the person, it's more, yeah. like you said, about the roles or kind of the style, so that's yeah. great. Although, you know how in Myers-Briggs there are 16 different combinations yes. of, of, of roles you can play, and there's lots of research about 12 of them, and then four of the roles have far less research because they're all the people who hate things like Myers-Briggs things. And they're like, I'm not going to do your stupid survey. I'm just going to carry on doing my own thing. Anyway, my wife is one of those four roles. I'm not sure which yet, but she's one of those four. <laughs> so we don't use Myers-Briggs because I can't get her to think about it like that. Yeah, that's funny. Well, I think in this configuration that you're saying, I'm definitely the visionary, and uh, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll share something just because we're talking about this. Um, we just came back from a, a phenomenal uh, trip, coming back from you know, Big Sur, which is down below San Francisco. Yeah, sure. And so, and it's a beautiful country, 
and we have a uh, a, a trailer that we're pulling. So it's new for us, you know. We get out on the river, and because I'm kind of more visionary, not detail oriented, um, we're 20 minutes from home. It's a four-hour drive, 20 minutes from home, and I'm driving, and I ran out of gas for the <laughs> second time in the exact same spot. And, <laughs> And, you know, 20 minutes from home, we're all thinking about, you know, let's get something to eat. And my wife's like, how do you not look at the fuel gauge? Not that this was the first time, but it was the second time. <laughs> That's and, a fantastic story. <laughs> and, you know, and she was just furious with me. And, and for me, it was kind of like, I can't believe I did this again. I mean, I could laugh at myself, but we were right. on the side of the road for over an hour <laughs> waiting to get some gas. Exactly. Yeah, you're you're buying the dinner that night. That's what. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe may for more than a night too. Yeah, so exactly. Anyway. Uh, so let me ask you a couple of the questions here. Tell us about you know the uh, balloon incident, and then maybe you know how you got uh, sued at, from one of your lecturers. Yeah. Well, the balloon incident. So you know, I, I, in part, I put that in my bio just because I find you know often when you people are getting introduced. They have these long bios that make you feel both bored and intimidated at the same time. So I'm yeah. trying to like, lighten things up a little bit um, because just like that, that quote, you know, you're so much more than the list of your achievements and often so much more is interesting in terms of where the struggle has been. I mean, that's, you know, when we're coaching people and we're thinking about helping people expand and fulfill to their potential, you know, there's that place around, show me your scars, show me where your struggle is, because that's the, the growth edge. That's where it's interesting. So, you know, the balloon incident, well, you know, I was in high school, um, 18, 17, you know, and our headmaster had been our headmaster for 35 years. It was his retirement year. And um, <laughs> it, it, it sounds better as a headline than an actual story, I'm just realizing. <laughs> you know, so we weren't allowed to do anything because the, the kids the year before had trashed the place. They'd put glue in locks and they'd put weed killer on the lawn and written root things. So they appeared three weeks later when all the grass died off. And so we were banned from doing anything. And, of course, I went, well, that doesn't, that's no fun. You know, we're going we're gonna to see if we can mix things up a little bit. And it was a Christian high school, not a, not a kind of intense Christian high school, but it was nominally Christian. So it had a chapel. And it had a, a, a conical roof. And so I was like, yeah, here's something nice, simple, non-damaging, easy to do. So myself and some friends, we kind of commando crawled into the chapel early in the morning, set up the balloons and the gas-filled helium balloons, filled up the roof, which is beautiful. Then the chaplain comes in, or we spy him approaching. So we all rush to the back of the chapel where there's a door out the back, which unfortunately was locked. So he came in and found us all kind of clustered together, looking <laughs> as guilty as guilty can be, and it all kind of went downhill from there. That's funny. And then in terms of being sued at my law school, again, um, you know, it's an interesting story, I think, a little bit about what does it mean to take a stand. We had a, a law lecturer who was lecturing us on a topic, um, and the, the example, the factual example he was using to make the point of law uh, was about a woman being raped. And the, that that fact, which is distressing for all sorts of people, um, wasn't required to make the point about the point of law. So it's just mm. gratuitous. Anyway, mm. so myself and some others asked him to remove it. He got into a half, and then before we all knew it, 
<laughs> I, I arrived at Oxford, actually, with a, a writ for, for whatever it was, $50,000 or something, for being sued by, by this law lecturer, and it, it made it into the, the Times newspaper in London in a little section. It was all, it was all, a, it was all a flurry of a tempest in a teapot, as they say. Um, but what was interesting for me as uh, somebody being trained in law was to right. understand a little better about how law is not so much about justice. It's actually about how power works and who has power uh-huh. and how the, the, the system, if you understand it, can be manipulated um, for the use of power as much as it is for, you know, just shining justice or whatever. Right, right. And so did you get out of that case? I mean, you didn't have to... You didn't have to... So here's what he did that was brilliant. So he sued us. We were all in our kind of final years at law, law school. Um, we graduated. We went our separate ways. And a year later, he dropped the lawsuit. So uh, what that meant is we couldn't talk about it or do anything while at law school. He kept his job. And oh. he kind of just made, it, made the whole thing go away. So, yeah, yeah I hats off to him. It was a brilliant tactical move, even though I didn't like the man. <laughs> well, it was strategic that way. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Good. So, so say a little bit about... Um, how did you get into uh, coaching? And, and uh, one, one second here. Let me just, I'm looking at, we may want to take our break. I was just looking at my watch. We may have missed our first little break here. So let me go to our break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about kind of coaching and then your your book, The Coaching Habit. So I'm really yeah, perfect. Uh, excited about that. So you're listening to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practice of Top Performers. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better? What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. You're listening to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers with your hosts, Dr. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions for these noted experts, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News. We have a delightful conversation with, with uh, Michael uh, Bungay-Stanier, and we're going to get into his book, um, The Coaching Habit. Uh, he is the founder of the Box of Crayons. And, Michael, what's the best website for people to kind of to get yeah, more of your information? 
Yeah, thanks for asking about that. So if you're interested in the new book, The Coaching Habit, it's simply thecoachinghabit.com. There's a bunch of free resources there, of course. And if you're interested in the, uh, our company, Box of Crayons, boxofcrayons.biz, B-I-Z or B-I-Z, depending on what side of the border you happen to live. Okay. Boxofcrayons.biz. Great. And how did you come up with that t- title for your company? Well, you know, so I, I just arrived in Toronto. It was 2001. I knew nobody. But my wife and I had lived in Boston beforehand, and we were kind of not work- making it work in Boston. So we went to our local pub. We each wrote down the name of three cities on a beer coaster after we'd had two or three beers each, flipped them over. Toronto made both the list, so we went, right, Toronto it happens to be. And so, of course, when you first arrive in a city, you're like, I don't know anybody. So I, I was out speaking and networking and drinking coffee with people who I never want to drink coffee with again. Uh-huh. And one of the things I was doing for my local ICF chapter, the Toronto GTA ICF chapter, was I ran a workshop on branding. So I came up with Michael's three you know, outstanding rules about brands and then discovered that my company name, as it was then, failed all three of my own tests. So uh-huh. I was like, ah. Oh. So I now had three weeks to come up with a better name for my company. And then you know, I went through a lot of bad names. But when Box of Crayons kind of showed up in my head, I was like, that's fantastic. And just that was it. And I just knew from the moment, the moment I thought of it, that was going to be a great name for a company. Oh, that's good. That is a great name. Oh, cool. Well, so say a little bit about how you went from, uh, you know, finish, sounds like finishing law school, meeting your wife, ended up in Toronto. Where How did the coaching start? How did you get into coaching? Yeah, so coaching really, I think, began before all of that. When I was at high school, I found myself as, you know, the guy who would sit with my lovelorn friends probably because I was lousy, I had a lousy love life of my own, kind of listening to their stories. And I remember even as a sort of 14, 15, 16-year-old going, so it's obvious I'm good at listening to people, but I just don't know what the heck I'm doing at all. You know, there must be something better I can do than just listen. And what I did is when I joined, went to university in Australia, I joined a, a teenage telephone crisis hotline. So it kind of taught me the basics of oh. Rogerian counseling, you know, which is yeah. the question-based, curiosity-based, trying to get below the surface. And uh, I took that with me to England and, and did some counseling uh, in England as well. And by the time I finally got a job in the UK, I kind of noticed the rise of coaching. But it was in California, so I was like, ah, oh, that's probably some sort of weird... Californian trend thing. And because you're in England, you're like, yeah, we should ignore that. But I was interested. Um, and then when I moved to the States, I hired my first coach um, just because I thought that'd be an interesting experiment. What's this all about? And uh, then by the time I moved to Canada in 2001, I, I did my coach training. So I trained through the Coach Training Institute, CTI. Hmm. Um, built a coaching practice, which was pretty successful, but then realized that actually having a coaching practice didn't fulfill me nearly as much as I thought it would. What really fulfilled me was uh, writing and teaching. So that's why I now facilitate and give speeches and write books and the like, because that feels kind of closely connected to my great work, whereas coaching itself, less less meaningful for me. Hmm. Well, I imagine then you're having a bigger audience. That's always helpful. So um, do you are you doing coaching at all, or is it mostly through your writing and... Yeah, and... No. So I don't do any coaching anymore, and you know it, it, it's hard because like you know people call me up and go, "Hey, I love your book or whatever." Yeah. You coach, but you know to your point about impact. 
So impact is really important to me. You know, when I talk about my personal mission statement, it's to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. You know, I find that that's very motivating for me and inspiring on all sorts of levels. And what I, re- what I had to ask myself then is, so of all the stuff I can do, what is going to scale so that I have a better chance of reaching a billion people? Because that's impossible. Right. And coaching one-to-one doesn't scale. But mm-hmm. writing and speaking to you know, t- tens of thousands of people or whatever it might be, that has a better chance of scaling. So it starts making those choices that much easier for me. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense, especially, you know, that idea we hear from uh, Steve Jobs, make a dent in the universe. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you, how do you make a bigger dent? And I think, you know, that, that has been some of my shift also from being a psychologist at first in private practice and, and then moving to organizations and really right. then making a bigger dent in organizations because, one, the organization hires you uh, and then bringing, you know, transformation, new language, new tools to a, an organization. And now through this... Um, right, like nine years, millions of people, that's another way of reaching out and scaling impact, right? Yeah, so I think between this and then I have a blog on psychology today, and, and I'm finding more and more I'm, I'm really excited about kind of the reach, kind of like you're saying, um, that's really important. Well, you see, the other thing that Steve Jobs says, as well as the making a dent in the universe, is what focuses is saying, not just saying yes, but it's actually what you say no to. You know, strategy, if you like, is being able to say no to the stuff that you kind of want to say yes to. And that's where the discipline lies. Yeah, yeah. That's huge. So what do you do when people ask you about being a coach? I mean, do you, because like a lot of people get into then having a coach training institute or something yeah. like that. You know, I just, I, I, I politely decline. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned is about the power of focus. So, right. you know, Box of Crayons, we have a really specific goal. We give busy managers practical tools so they can coach in 10 minutes or less. That's all right. we do. Huh. And part of the power of that is it just makes it really easy for people to, to bump into our website and go, I'm interested or I'm not interested. Um, uh-huh. And secondly, it makes it really easy for me to say no to anything that's not that. And yeah. so it's a way of being more efficient um, around that because I can say, look, this is what we do, and we say no to everything else. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's great. Now, so um, I know we're trying to time this uh, interview with your book. Is, is <laughs> When did the coaching habit come out? So it came out on the 29th of February. So when I okay. realized that it was a leap year in 2016, I was like, I am, I am not going to miss the opportunity of having a launch date on the 29th of February. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking now. So it's been out about four, four or five weeks. Uh-huh. So I've been pretty excited about it. It's been the number one coaching book on Amazon since it's been launched. So I've been thrilled about that. Wow, that's great. Yeah, thank um, you. And uh, we'll get into kind of the content and stuff. You know, and I think, like I said, in my intro, I've been on the faculty of a coaching school since 2001, and so love how the how the profession has moved, and then also about the value of questions and conversations. And what I love about coaching is it's all about having this strategic conversation. How do you ask the right questions? How do you bring someone? One of the things I like to think about: How do you bring them to a new destination? If love it. Yeah. It, without the conversation, they keep going to the same destination over and over and over. So how do you bring them to a new destination? Mm. So that's a nice. And I'll just build on what you're saying because yeah. you know I think of strategy 
almost as a visual art because with strategy, what you're doing is you're seeing the landscape in front of you and you're trying to figure out the best way to get to the, the destination you've identified. Right. And I love the connection with what you're saying, which is around how do we help people see a new path or a new destination in terms of the landscape in front of them. Right, right. And I think it gets into kind of all the, you know, I play on the automaticity and autopilot, you know, that we just keep going to the same place. So um, before we get into all the content about this, because you've got some great stuff here, uh, how did this book come about, um, you know, given some of your other books that you had about doing great work? Yeah, so this is my fifth book. And honestly, I thought I kind of mastered how to write books. You know, I sort, of, I sort of tend to get an idea, see the arc of a book, kind of see how the whole thing fits together, and then sit down and write it. And the writing normally happens faster rather than slower. Uh-huh. This book almost killed me. <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote a version of it, and I sent it to my – I got an agent. So I sent it to my agent. He's like, that's not very good. So we worked it up and then finally went, okay, let's just send it to the, the publishing house. They got it. They went, that's still not very good. Which day I started to try and write the book I thought that they wanted me to write, which was a yeah. whole world of pain. <laughs> and then we got to a point where I went, you know what, I've, I've remembered what this book is about. And I came back to kind of the essence, which is, you know, what are the seven essential questions? What's the habit? What's the structure to allow you to ask those questions more regularly? And how do I write the shortest possible book that teaches all of that? Because, you know, so many books get kind of overstuffed and overfilled with you know, words that aren't that useful. Um, and once I reconnected to that kind of vision of what the book was about, it really started to flow. But, you know, this book took me four or five years to kind of grind my way through <laughs> several failures before I finally got figured out how to write a good version of the book. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, and it, I'm looking at it now, uh, and what I love about it is I think your personality really comes through in this. And you know how when you when you write a book, you can have all – interesting information but you really kind of are, are interested it's, it's the kind of the story and i think you have some good stories and just your writing style is uh really um intriguing you know because you uh, feel like you kind of get to know you yeah thank you for saying that and you know honestly some of the the praise i've got that is mo- I've, I've loved is people saying i laughed out loud two or three times when i was reading it and i'm like yes because business <laughs> books shouldn't be tedious and boring and dry and soul-sucking they should engage you like good literature so you know i had that goal to make this an enjoyable read not just a useful read that's great all right well so let's kind of get into some of the you know the specifics you know and what's great about this is you have you know seven key questions and um so maybe before we kind of that well like why is it so hard for people to be coach like you know because i deal with managers all the time and and a lot of it is try to, you know, manage her as a coach versus uh, being a manager. Why do you think it's hard to be coach-like? Yeah, and, you know, that's, that's my primary focus is the kind of busy managers, busy leaders who are doing their best, kind of feeling a bit overwhelmed. How do I help them be more coach-like? And, you know, there's a very simple answer to that, which is they've spent 10, 20, 30 years being told that giving the answer is the right thing to do. You know, starting right. school, going to university, going to the service. It's like we're rewarded for having the answer. Right. But at a certain point, we go, you know, A, most people's answers are wrong. I mean, they're not very good. <laughs> and then even the good ones, nobody really listens to them. So the uh-huh. whole advice-giving model just right. isn't actually the most effective way to work. 
But that's the first obvious reason why coaching is hard for most people to shift to. Even, even though the behavior change we're asking for is pretty straightforward, it's a little less advice giving and a little more curiosity. That's well, easier to uh, But that's so do. good to what you're saying in your subtitle, say less, ask more. Typically, I end up saying it in a very similar model to what you're saying. What's what's the manager default? A little bit of play on words. You don't have much yeah. time. Well, what's the manager default? Is to go find fault. Everything that's going well, they ignore, <laughs> right. and they zero in what's wrong. So if you're only on automatic, the default is to find fault, and therefore you've alienated your employees because they've done all this work that you haven't acknowledged, and you went right to the one thing that didn't work. Right, exactly. Yeah, a point well made. I, I think there's another challenge though here, which is actually. This is this kind of gets into the neuroscience and what makes us comfortable and uncomfortable. Yeah. When we're giving an answer, uh, it is a more comfortable, more familiar, more in-control place to be than when we ask a question. Because as soon as we ask a question, we're giving the other person power, the power to answer the question. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more ambiguous. It's like, was that a yeah. good question? What answer will they come up with? Well, I know how to respond to the answer. So you're in a place of kind of psychological uncertainty for that brief moment between asking a question and waiting for the answer. That's so I think it's a kind of that deeper pattern of behavior, which is you have to learn to sit with the ambiguity right. of asking the question and the fact that you've given the other person power. You've empowered them. actually means taking away some of your power and giving it to them so they have control of the conversation. Wow. That's that's so good. I love how you're saying that. And I think what happens for a lot of managers is the time crunch. If I ask a question, what if they go on too long? What if they're vague? What if I uh, I don't get what I want? Right. Let me just go right cut to the chase. And, yeah, exactly. and as a consequence, you know, cut to the chase kind of alienates a lot of the folks. Yeah, and, and I think, honestly, people like you and me are in part to blame for this because um, most people, when you ask them, what do you mean by coaching, executive coaching comes to mind. So these are people who kind of come in and every, what, two weeks or four weeks or something, has an hour sit down with whoever their client happens to be. And that can be very powerful, but it's a terrible role model for busy managers and busy leaders. So for us, so much of what coaching is about is to say to managers and leaders, look, if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you just don't have time to coach. Mm. So we've got to find ways of helping you be faster, more efficient, and right. that's kind of precious about what we're talking about with coaching. It's just a way of interacting with somebody. It's not a, you can, you know, you can, don't get too uptight about the fact that we're calling it coaching. It's just like a way of being more curious with people a little yeah. longer. No, that's great. And so lately I've been using the term kind of how do you master the moment? And it's just like you're saying, Michael, it happens in moments. This is not all day long that you're doing this, but it, in nice. these one, two, three minute, four minute conversations, how do you master the moment? One, you have to kind of know what's going on for you. Two, you have to know what's going on for them. It's kind of an input-output. And so how yeah, do you nice. get the right input to get the right output? So let, me, so let me ask you, how do you help people understand what's going on for them in the moment? Because that's the tricky thing. That's breaking the habit. And that awareness is a hard thing to find. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me tell you in a minute because we're going we're gonna to go to the next break and then we'll come back and then we'll get into your question. So, the, the perfect uh, teaser. Come the back perfect after teaser. the break to find yes, out. You left, and you left me with a teaser. <laughs> so uh, this is Leadership Development News. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
Let Kathy Greenberg teach you and your team how to harness the power of happiness to generate even greater success and satisfaction at work. Did you know by applying coaching and the new science of happiness, you can improve your return on people anywhere from 50% to 350%. At H2C, we believe in both a return on people, that's ROP, as much as return on investment, or ROI. Kathy Greenberg, New York Times bestselling author of What Happy Working Mothers Know and internationally acclaimed What Happy Companies Know, is the leading global expert on coaching combined with the new science of happiness and originator of the Happiness Equals Profits business formula. Kathy's company, H2C, Happy Companies, Healthy People, provides practical knowledge for individuals and entire companies to maximize their potential in as little as one day. Kathy is available for one-to-one executive coaching, group programs, and as an electrifying conference speaker. Catch Kathy Greenberg at leading conferences and as a spokesperson for Cancer Treatment Centers of America. For free tips and downloads, visit Kathy's award-winning book site, WhatHappyWorkingMothersKnow.com. Or for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results for your business, visit Kathy Greenberg at H2CLeadership.com. That's H2CLeadership.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers with your hosts, Dr. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions for these noted experts, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development Profiles and Practices of Top Performers. We're talking with a top performer here, uh, Michael Bungay-Sanya, who wrote The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, Change the Way You Lead Forever. So before the break, uh, Michael, you asked me a question about, you know, how do you kind of in the moment, and I talked about this idea of mastering the moment. And yeah. so I have these five strategic questions that I call the emotional audit. And this is on my website, and I've written about it in Psychology Today. And they're similar to your questions. So in the moment, these are all prefrontal cortex questions. What am I thinking? And then you pause. What am I feeling? And then you pause. And these generate data. What do I want? It's kind of like one of your focusing questions. What do I want in this situation? Question number three. Question number four, how am I getting in my way? And that's where the self-awareness comes in of of the overusing your strengths. So what am I thinking? What am I feeling? What do I want? How am I getting in my way? And then the last question is, okay, so now what? So what am I going to do differently? So they're all kind of a, awareness questions of trying to create focus. Yeah, they're, they're all great questions. And I'll tell you one that really resonates for me, so I want people to hear it, is uh, the middle question, which is, so what do I want? Yes. Because, you know, I, so that's one of the books that, uh, questions in the Coaching Habit book as well. We call it the foundation question because it's so important. But at one stage, I was thinking of calling it the goldfish question, because when you ask somebody that, including yourself, often you start making one of those little goldfish faces, because your eyes kind of pop out a little bit, and you make that kind of guffy, guffy thing with your your mouth, (laughs) because it's really hard to answer. And so often, what has uh, got in our way of having a successful conversation is, we're not clear what we want, and we're certainly not clear what the other person might want as well. So I think that's a brilliant question to point people to. Well, and like you said, I think it gets you in kind of uncertainty. You have to kind of you have to think, 
and most of us aren't thinking. So right. let's 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 go through some of your questions. So the Kickstarter question, you know, is is kind of the first one, and maybe say yeah. something about that. We'll go through each one. Yeah, sure. So yeah, you know, after in the previous section before we got to the break, I was talking about how important it is for managers and leaders to feel like they had to coach in ten minutes or less. Right. And of course, so many coaching conversations or regular conversations are kind of slow-moving, meandering, almost getting to the point but never quite getting to the point conversations. And so the kickstart question, I think, is a really powerful way to start any conversation, not just a coaching conversation, but really any interaction. Mm -hmm. And it's simply this, what's on your mind? Mm -hmm. And the reason I think it's so powerful, really, is that it is both open, so you're giving them autonomy, you're giving them the choice to go where they want to go, but it's also got a real sense of focus to it because there's this piece around, don't tell me anything. Tell me what's exciting you or what's worrying you or what's you know, filling your brain or overwhelming you at the moment. Let's go there. Mm-hmm. So it's a way to get much more quickly into the heart of things. And you know, one of the ways I've seen that work really well is uh, you know, on one-to-one meetings. So as far as I can tell, most organizations, one-to-one conversations, horrible. They're boring. There's this kind of tedious reporting out of stuff that's happened, and both sides are kind of bored by it. But if the manager or the the leader wants to start the conversation, not with the usual agenda, but, hey, let's go what's on your mind, then it becomes a much more interesting, much more useful conversation much more quickly. And and I think that helps from what we said earlier for the manager who doesn't want to be uncertainty and say, okay, are they going to are they going to meander around? Am I going to waste time? That right. is that's a great focusing question. What's on your mind? Yeah, lovely. Okay, so that's the first one, and then the awe question, and I'll let you explain what the awe question is. Yeah, so we call this the best coaching question in the world, and of course, as soon as you say that, everybody kind of takes a breath and get a little closer to the paper they're writing on, and their pens are poised. It's like, okay, the best coaching question in the world. What is it? And I'm like, and you know, it's an awe question because it's a three-word question, and right. the acronym is AWE. So it's oh, so it's literally an awesome question, which is fantastic. And here's what the question is: And what else? Now, <laughs> as soon as I say that, everybody's like, oh, that it? <laughs> I was hoping for a more <laughs> exciting question than that. And uh-huh. what else? But why I call it the best coaching question in the world is that it gives you a chance to supercharge any other question that you've asked. Because the first answer somebody gives you is never the only answer, and mm. it's rarely the best answer. So, you know, when you ask your, your five questions, it's like, what are you thinking? And what else are you thinking? You know, what are you feeling? What else are you feeling? And what else are you feeling? What do you want? What else do you want? And what else do you really want? You can see how and what else holds you in the place of inquiry and deepens that insight. Yeah. But the other powerful piece around and what else, not just that it helps the other person go deeper, but it is a self-management tool for the person asking the question. Because what I'm trying to get them to do is slow down the rush to giving advice and offering solutions and coming yeah. up with ideas. And if they're asking a question, they're not doing the work. So in some ways, it's also just a self-management tool to say, mm. stay curious. And and what else is the easiest question to ask to stay curious and have them do the work. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it does take it takes off from the coach having to have too much of an agenda and really go back like you said earlier, kind of that Rogerian style, yeah. go back to the coachee. And yeah. I love what you said in your book you have it also allows you to tame the advice. Right. And that's what I was saying, you know, the 
manager defaults, fine fault, and they want to give advice. That's my job, right? And it's like, well, not really, depending on what your goal is. Right, exactly right. And honestly, people don't understand just how much they love to give advice, but people love it. I mean, you can see it every time in our program. You know, we're 90 seconds into a conversation. They have no idea what's really going on, but they're absolutely sure they have the answer and how to fix it. <laughs> we're just trying to slow down that rush to give advice. Yeah, yeah, so that, that's great. And I love what you have because you you've done a nice job bringing in kind of current research and books and stuff. And I, I love the uh, uh, decisive book by the Heath brothers. And you yeah, have really here good. that what they found in research is that 71% of decisions, the choice is binary. And so the what else is kind of, you know, allowing not yes or no, but what else. So that's a great right. one. Because... The problem with 71% of decisions being binary, in other words, should we do it or should we not do it, is that they fail more than 50% of the time. But if you add just a single additional option, so that's where and what else can help out, yeah. you reduce the failure rate by down to about 30%, almost by half. It's amazing the difference it makes. Wow. Okay. And then one of the keys that underlies everything that you're doing here is your third question, the focus question. Right. So... Here's, the, here's the, the starting hypothesis. In most organizations, people are working really hard, coming up with great ideas, kind of giving their all to solve the wrong problems. Mm. So we want to be able to slow down the rush to action again and help them, say, find the real challenge before they start coming up with the ideas. So the question here is, what's the real challenge here for you? And it's worthwhile for people to listen to how that's constructed. Because I could ask, what's the challenge here? And you can feel that that's going to kind of give you a kind of overview, executive summary, kind of top line of what's going on. Right. If you ask, what's the real challenge, that's going to take them a little longer to figure out because you're saying, you know, you have to do some work here to figure out what really matters. But the real power comes when you ask, what's the real challenge here for you? And that's when the spotlight swings away from the issue to the person dealing with the issue. So to use coaching jargon, it moves away from coaching for performance to coaching for development. Uh And that can be extremely powerful. So those two words, for you, adding those to the end of almost any question, actually kind of powers up that question a little bit. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And it really does, you know, focusing for them because you could get too generic. And I think, again, going back to your premise, how can you coach in 10 minutes and I'm saying this hopefully for the managers and leaders listening, it's really zeroing in. The person's not going to waste your time, and you're not going to lose all the time. Matter of fact, it's the opposite. You're going to zero in on the target with right. the design of these questions that, that you have, Michael. Well, you know, our, our, our claim is we help people work less hard but have more impact. And, you yeah. know, it's, it's got a degree of marketing built into that, but I truly believe it, which is because we're all working so hard just to get stuff done. If we slowed down and figured out what the real stuff was to get done, then all of us are going to have more impact and get to work right. less hard as well. Well, one of the things that's underlying what you're saying, and I'm sure you've seen it, uh, that I've been using more as a premise is uh, the Daniel Kahneman book, you know, Thinking Fast or Slow. Yeah, I love that book. And a lot of times what I'm saying for leaders, and I think your, your price would agree with this, is leadership is slow thinking. It's not the time, unless it's a crisis, it's not the time to be fast thinking. If you truly right. want to develop someone, you got to think of these questions that you have. Think of the things that, that I have. And you got to slow down and right. get off automatic. And you don't have to slow down very much. <laughs> I right, mean, honestly, right. We, well, one of the exercises in our programs is we get people to practice a little script. 
And it's questions that people have heard on this call. So the, the four question script is, what's the real challenge here for you? And what else is a challenge? And what else is a challenge? Okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? Oh. So, you know, people are like weirded out when we get people to do this because they say, you know, it's a script and it's, it's only two questions, each one repeated twice. But what they find is in three or four minutes, the conversation goes into deeper than they could ever have guessed. Yeah. And it's just because they've got the discipline and the curiosity to kind of push into what the challenge is rather than accelerating into the answer. No, I, I like that. You know, it's a little bit of takeoff. I think yours is a little bit more elegant. We, we've all heard of the five why questions, you know, well, why that, why that. Right. Yours adds a kind of a, a deeper and I think a more personal piece to that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I mean, the four whys, they're kind of that, what are the ladder of inference, as they call it. Very yeah. powerful getting to kind of root causes. But one of the things that we talk about in the book is to suggest that people shouldn't ask the question why right. most of the time at work. Because when you do, first of all, you have to get the tone exactly right or else it can come across as fairly ac accusatory. Yeah. You know, so why the hell did you do that <laughs> sort of yeah. thing rather than I'm genuinely curious about it. Yep. The second yeah, thing about asking why is it tends to generate a story, an explanation, a justification. Yeah. And actually, you don't really need that a lot of the time. You really just allow them to do the work to get to the heart of the challenge. So I think the five whys is a really powerful tool, but in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and I would say you're, what you have is so much more elegant because you're right, exactly what you're saying. Why is you're going to get someone being defensive? Yeah. Um, so what about the foundation question? And that's similar to actually what the third question I have in the emotional audit. What do you want? Yeah, exactly. Right? It's like, what do you want? And, um, I, you know, we've talked a little bit about that. I would say that I think it's a powerful coaching question in general, but I find it particularly powerful if you're in, in kind of interacting with somebody and it's gone a bit wrong. So, you know, you're a bit angry or annoyed or frustrated or sad or upset, whatever it might be. And you can feel yourself because when that happens, you move out of your prefrontal cortex into your kind of amygdala brain, fight or flight, right. and you kind of get into a vicious circle. Yeah. And one of the ways to pull yourself out of that and kind of rebalance the conversation and the relationship is that piece about asking yourself, what do I want here? What do yeah. I want? And then if you're feeling generous, ask yourself, you know, what do I think they really want? What are they really after here? And you know, if you're feeling courageous, you could even ask them that rather than just taking a guess. But I think if you go through that process, what do I want, what do they want, yeah. actually, you'll find it actually kind of grounds and rebalances the conversation, gets you off to a healthier way of carrying forward. Right. Well, and I think, like you said, when I, when I went through this emotional audit with some of the neuroscientists, they said these are all prefrontal cortex questions, which probably I would say yours are too, meaning that you have to get the person thinking. And if they're thinking they're probably less emotional about something because it's that part right. of the brain getting the blood and oxygen. And that's in part why we, the, the, the opening chapter for the book is about habit building because the problem with prefrontal questions is, you know, most of us just default to a way of reacting and responding, and by then it's too late. <laughs> right. Prefrontal cortex hasn't even come online yet, and you're in some sort of messy situation. Yeah. And what's powerful about habits is you get to move what are prefrontal cortex questions into a more habitual response so that uh, you've actually got a way of kind of yeah, a, a safety net almost so that you go to the place you want to go rather than to a less healthy place. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very strategic, and I'm just looking at as you're talking about the habits. 
you know, your questions about the project, the people, and the patterns. Right. And, uh, you know, really trying to <clears throat> move people forward. So as we move forward now, we've we've talked about what's on your mind, what else, what's the real challenge for you, what do you want? The fifth question you said is the lazy question. Yeah, and um, <laughs> it's almost a misnomer because when I tell people what the lazy question is, they're like, oh, I don't get that. But the lazy question is, how can I help? Or a more blunt version of it is, what do you want from me? Yeah. And, of course, that doesn't sound lazy at all. That sounds like you're just asking for a whole lot more work. But here's why we call it the lazy question. And we've, we've touched on it already. And it's this. Most times when people hear a situation, they just start acting. They're like, I'm not going to check it out with you. I'm, not, I'm just going to assume I know what you need here, and I'm going to start giving it to you. Here's my intervention, whether you want it or not. Right. If you can build a habit to say, rather than me jumping in to give them what I think they want, why don't I ask them, how can I help, or what do you want from me? What you're doing is actually forcing them to go back to the question we've just talked about, what do you want, which is that foundational thing, which is make a clear request. And, of course, once you hear that request, you get to say yes or no or maybe. You get to choose your response. Yeah. But what you're doing is you're making it clear what you're about to commit to rather than defaulting to what you think they want. And, and that's really good. So it's almost a validation. You know, you may already have this idea in mind, but uh, you may be right, you could be wrong, and how can I help? So just because we're getting towards the end, what about number six, the strategic question? Yeah, so a strategic question, we actually talked about it already, so this is a quick and easy one to sum up. If you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? And we talked yeah. about Steve Jobs and that whole piece around focus is really the, the boldness and the courage to say no to the stuff you want to do. Yeah. And one of the quotes, I don't know who said this, but I always use that from a time management. Are you conscious of what you're saying no to when you say yes to something? And right, most of exactly. us, we're not conscious of what we just said no to. So, And then the learning question. So what about that? Is that, is that usually towards the end of the coaching? Yeah, it is. This is a kind of, uh, you know, I think of the what's on your mind and the learning question, which is what was most useful here for you as the coaching bookends, kind of the start and the finish. Right. Because, you know, if you look at, uh, I mean, there's a bazillion definitions of what coaching is. But one of the ones that people love is John Whitmore's. And John Whitmore, who's you know, one of the grandfathers of coaching, I guess, right. he says that coaching is about helping people learn rather than teaching them. But you have to know how people learn to, to help people learn. And they don't learn when you tell them stuff. They don't even learn when they do stuff. They really only learn when they have a chance to reflect on what just happened. Right. So asking the question, so what was most useful or most valuable here for you, forces them to reflect and extract the value of the conversation, which they may miss otherwise. But as a kind of added bonus, it gives you feedback about what is working or not working so that you can um, uh, improve the next time around and whatever it is that you're doing. So I think, um, Michael, we're, we're at the end here. This has been really great. So let's make sure that people know how to get a hold of this. Uh, and it was thecoachinghabit.com? That's right. And I'll, I'll make a request. If people buy the book, and I'd love them to buy it, of course, if they do do me that favor, here's my second favor, which is consider writing a review on Amazon.com because I'm trying to build up a, a pr social proof that it's a good book. So right. if you do that for me, I'd, I'd be grateful. Uh, that's great. All right. Well, so, Michael, I'll, I'll be glad to, to uh, now that I kind of have interviewed you and kind of got through this, to write something on, uh, on Amazon. Uh, that would be fantastic. Thanks, Helpful. I'd love to be able to 
stay in touch. You got some, you know, we're, we're very aligned, and you got some really great tools. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time for this. So, this has been Leadership Development News, um, helping you tune in on your performance. So we're signing off for now, and thank you so much, Michael. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We sincerely hope that you gained some great ideas and inspiration on how to elevate your leadership skills. Join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Business Channel. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.